Well, uh, good evening. It's good to have you here. Tonight we start an 11-week study of 1 John, which will take us through most of April. The last night of the semester, April 24th, uh, we won't have a study. We'll be in here, but it'll be a mission night. So this goes till uh, the week before that. Tonight, I want to begin spending most of the night just giving you an introductory overview of 1 John, and then we'll uh, move into the first four verses of uh, 1 John. John. 1 John is uh, anonymous. An author isn't identified, uh, but second and third John is written by someone uh, well-known enough that he self-identifies simply as the elder. Uh, as we'll see tonight, uh, some of the themes and wording are very similar, uh, almost exactly similar to uh, the Gospel of John, and so we believe that this was written by uh, the Apostle John, the Beloved. John, along with his brother James, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and, and Peter were sort of the inner circle of uh, Jesus' handpicked apostles. Uh, these three men went with Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the glorified Christ as he conversed uh, with Moses and Elijah concerning uh, Jesus' upcoming uh, crucifixion. The same three men uh, Jesus takes with him uh, in the Garden of the Gethsemane. He goes off alone, and he takes these three men to pray with him. Uh, and so these were men that Jesus relied on, that he loved. Uh, and as apostles, they were handpicked uh, to hold a unique office in the life of the church. Uh, apostles functioned as the official eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Uh, it is through the apostles or their close associates uh, that uh, what was written and preserved for us as Scripture uh, that they penned. Uh, John is writing uh, anywhere from 80 A.D. to 100 A.D. So this is some 50 uh, to 70 years after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection. John is a very old man, um, even especially in light of um, first century uh, life expectancy. Uh, an old man would have been 60 back then, uh, so he is ancient. Uh, John is the last of the apostles. The rest have been martyred according to various church traditions. At this point in time, uh, John may be the last surviving eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the last person to have a personal contact with Jesus himself. And so, uh, think of the excitement to sit under his teaching, know, knowing that he spent years with the Messiah. He walked and talked 
with Christ. Uh, if you're a history buff like I am, just having that personal connection to history can be very exciting. I remember um, when I was in college, a group of us in a class uh, went to the Archaeological Museum in Philadelphia. It's part of the University of Penn. And uh, most of the ancient artifacts were under glass, but there were these huge stone pillars with, you know, writing and hieroglyphics or something in it, and there was a rope. And at some point, the guide announced to the group that we should not touch it. That really wasn't addressed to the group. It was addressed to me because I couldn't help myself. I just leaned over the, just to touch it. Um, John knew Christ. How many unrecorded stories did he have? How many stories about Jesus or the twelve could he remember? And sometimes we wish we could sit at uh, John's feet and hear him teach and tell those stories and how exciting that would be. But as we begin this study, I want us to pause and, and to remember that really we have something far better and far more exciting. We have God's word to us. Uh, this is God speaking to us. Uh, Sometimes we consider Scripture as God dealing with those people way back then. It's just a this is God speaking to them in such a way that what he says applies and includes us. Do you have a tissue? Does anybody have a tissue? Oh, thank you. Uh, So we should uh, begin this study with uh, a, a certain amount of excitement and expectation. What is it that God wants to do? Uh, the Spirit wants to work in our hearts through His Word. And so we remind ourselves that all Scripture is inspired. It's breathed out by God, and it is profitable, it is beneficial for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness that the servant of God may be perfect, may be complete, may be ready for every good work. So with that in mind, uh, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that your spirit is alive within us and that you want uh, to speak to your people. You want us to be changed. You want us to be conformed to your image. And so, Father, we're here asking you to do all that you want in our hearts and our lives this semester. And, Father, we ask that you would begin that tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John, this old man, is ministering in Ephesus. Uh, when he writes this letter. Perhaps a better way to describe this is it, it seems less like a letter and more like a sermon. Uh, John is talking to this church because this church 
has recently uh, faced a crisis. There has been a group of individuals who were uh, part of that church that have since broken away from the church. They're now denying uh, that Jesus is actually the Messiah and denying that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Uh, They don't think uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. In in, uh, 1 John 2, 18 to 23, John says, It is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, those who are opposed to Christ. Therefore, we know that is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ? These individuals who have left the church, he calls them antichrists. Uh, they don't think Jesus is the Messiah, nor do they think that he's the Son of God. In chapter 4 of 1 John, uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see the, whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John is writing uh, to encourage uh, this church that is hurting. He's responding uh, to those who perhaps are thinking, what happened? I remember Joe or Mary or whoever. And I thought they were strong and mature in the Lord. And now they just have left. If you've been a Christian for very long, you've experienced that same feeling. Those that we know, that we love, that we believed were true believers and and showed some maturity, or so we thought, often walk away. I can think of individuals uh, that I grew up with that seemed to believe. But as time passed, they faded. There are even, I can think of uh, two individuals from seminary, guys that were going to, to graduate school to be pastors who have since left the faith. What does John say? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been up with us, they would have continued with us. We have to remind ourselves of Jesus' parable of the the seed and the soil. 
the second seed is sown among rocky soil, and it springs up with joy, seeming to have life. But over time, when the sun comes up and scorches it, it fades, it dies. Scripture says because they had no life in themselves. So John writes to assure those who still believe in Christ that God is with them as they adhere to the truth. John's not saying anything new in this book. In fact, much of what he says, uh, uh, some of the key words and the images he used come directly from Jesus' teaching in John uh, chapters 13 to 17. But John wants to persuade these believers, and so he wants to persuade you and I to persevere in what they, what we, believe. As we look at this uh, book, we'll see that John doesn't use a sort of a linear approach or a linear argument like, like Paul would. Uh, he, he uses what some guys would call symphonic theology. Uh, you think about a symphony where uh, a, a, a musical theme is introduced and then the music comes back to it again and again. That's what John does here. He introduces themes like life and love and truth, and then he circles back to them again and again, each time offering a slightly different angle and emphasis so that our understanding is deepened and strengthened. And while John uses this thematic approach, uh, he does break down this letter into two major sections. Uh, Both sections are marked off by the phrase, this is the message, followed by images of God as light and God as love. The first section Uh, begins in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from Christ and proclaim to you, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If God is light, then our participation in this life of light is in and through our faith union with Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with Christ, and in him we have been brought into the fellowship that exists between the Father and the Son from all eternity. Saving faith brings us into a real and vital relationship with Jesus and thereby into the same relationship with the Father that Jesus has. That's, a, that's, a, that's an almost an unbelievable statement. We share in the relationship that Jesus has with the Father because we are united to him. Think of uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John Uh, 17, Jesus says, I ask not only for these, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. United to Christ, we are one with him and one with the Father and one with each other. Why is unity so important in the life of the church? Because we are one. And the unity that we have is a witness to the world. It's one of the means God uses to draw people to himself. And so when we divide on secondary issues in such a way that dishonors Christ, we dishonor God. We can disagree. But not at the, at the sake of unity. We have far more in common than anything that divides us. And so John argues, if we are children of the light, God is light, and if we are children of the light, then we should walk in the light, meaning we should keep his commandments. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, then obey my commands. Obedience is evidence of walking in the light. John 3, verses 19 to 21, Jesus, who is the light of the world, says the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As children of the light, walk in the light, obey God. In Christ, again, we have fellowship with the Son and the Father manifested by walking in the light, meaning obeying all that God commands us to do. In fact, uh, John states it strongly in uh, 1 John 3, verses 8 to 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, makes a practice of sinning. That's a sober statement. For God's seed abides in him, 
and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers. Which leads us to the next large section, which begins in 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message. That, those are the key words. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This love is defined as sacrificing for others. As we trust in Christ, we are changed from the inside so that we are able to love God and love others. Before coming to Christ, we think we love people. And it may be a form of love, but it's a twisted form. True love is a fruit of the Spirit. And God enables us to love even those that perhaps at times we don't always like. First John 4, 7, God is love. And God demonstrated his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we share in the love that God pours out on us, inevitably we love one another. 1 John 4, 19 uh, to 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The cross is God's love in action. The gospel is the light of God's love shined into our hearts. And when we trust in Christ, we have fellowship with the triune God. And we begin to participate in God's life of light and love. This is seen in our obedience to God, in loving God and loving each other, in our shared life together with God. The gospel isn't simply 
a way to get out of hell. The gospel changes us and brings us into relationship with God through union with Christ. The gospel is not simply information, but rather a relationship with the living God. Christ died for sin to remove the barrier between God and ourselves. And so in Christ, we have peace with God. Christ died for sin. Christ lived for righteousness, meriting for us the eternal life that God always intended us to have, represented by the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Fellowship with Christ makes us new creations in Christ, which elevates us to a new plane of existence. We live differently than we did before. We were simply fallen and sinful, but in Christ we are God's children. We are ambassadors of Christ. We live in light and love, and we are empowered to live out that fellowship, known in how we love one another. In spite of in uh, this right, I think lesson four in membership. Uh, uh, um, covenant and when we, a public covenant church and when uh, we loved each other it's easy to love other people when you can walk away at least for a time it's a little harder when they're always there And <laughs> I don't know what you're laughing about. Um, we, we, Jen and I love each other more in spite of difficulties. Because those difficulties does what? It tests our love for one another. In, in fact, it doesn't just test it, it can strengthen our love for one another as we learn to forgive, as we learn to be patient. And I'm hoping someday you will. <laughs> in the same way, it's easy to love. It's, it's when they when we rub up against each other, we get to exercise. That's when we get to exercise and forgiveness. That's when our love is tested and purified. That's when the rough edges of our heart are, are, are being sanded down by God. 
And so those moments, though they can be unpleasant and difficult, those, those times are God's gift to us to shape us and to form us into his image so that we love him and each other better. Fellowship with Christ makes us new creations. And so as we realize that and that God is calling us to live in light and love for God and each other, that reality then brings us to the conclusion of 1 John in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. And then John ends his letter with this phrase. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And in one sense, we read that and it seems kind of abrupt. But that's the natural conclusion, isn't it? Having, having experienced the reality of God in Christ, we know the truth. What is that truth? That there is no other gods. There is only one true God, and that's the God of Scripture. And that Jesus is God in flesh who came to restore the created order in us, to bring us back into a right relationship with God. And John 1, 1 to 5 says this, the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All things were created through and for Christ. And all meaning of life is tied up with fellowship in Christ. Since that is true, flee idolatry. There is no sense to the world apart from God's interpretation of it. And so flee from idolatry. Flee from sin. Flee from anything that seeks to exercise controlling influence over your life, even the good things. Whether it be relationships, or money, or power, or reputation. All of those must bow before the one true God. That's 
the overview. Now we'll look at the specifics. Uh, we're uh, looking at verses 1 to 4 of John, 1 John 1. John begins this letter, this sermon, addressing the very issues that those who left the church were denying. That Jesus is God in flesh and that he is the promised Messiah, the Christ, who came to bring life to those who trust in him. Read with me uh, 1 John 1 to 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Already, just in those four verses, all the the themes that I address throughout the whole book, he's already touched upon. And hopefully, as we read that passage, you've already recognized the parallels to the beginning of John's gospel. That which was from the beginning, the very words he uses to start this book, echoes John 1. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which then echoes back even further to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is this Word but Jesus Christ himself, who was from or in the beginning? The beginning of what? The beginning of all beginnings. Before there was anything, there was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything else that has existence and its meaning is found in the eternal triune God. He is the source of all reality because he made it. And therefore he gets to define it. And he's the one who tells us how to understand all reality. That's why trying to make sense of the created world apart from God is nonsensical. There are things we can know in our fallen state, but it's limited. And it's incomplete. I remember uh, David Pallison in a counseling class years ago at Westminster. He was talking about uh, 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 dealing with people, struggling with issues, uh, ministry of the word to the individual. And he said, uh, motivation really is the key to it all. Why do people do what they do? And he says, the world, it, it, it's like a chessboard. 
But the unbelieving world only sees part of it. They see how peace is moving. They're trying to make sense of it, but they don't understand that the pieces, the black pieces on this side of the board are actually responding to the white. We have all been created in relationship with God. We are covenant creatures, either in covenant rebellion or covenant submission. We are always responding to God and his world and trying to make sense of this world without seeing the other side of the picture, what God is doing and who he is. We're just making theories that may have some grain of truth but can't make full sense of the world. The created reality is what it is only because God has made it what it is. And so creation begins and ends with God. Think of Paul in Colossians 1. By the eternal Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Son is in the beginning with God, and he is God. He creates all things, and he sustains all things. This second person of the Trinity, the the eternal Son took on humanity. He took on flesh and blood. He took on human emotions and a human will in order to live and to die for us, to redeem us, all of who we are, and to restore us to God. That which, we, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched, the invisible God took on flesh. He is the word of life, the word made flesh. Christ is God manifested to us as the ultimate revelation of God himself. In Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the final and definitive revelation of God because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So John is addressing those that have left the church in a very direct fashion. The things that you deny, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God in flesh, you are actually denying the gospel. And so you are not in fellowship 
with God. You are of the Antichrist. You are false prophets. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, the word made flesh, is a divine person with a divine nature who takes upon himself human flesh and a human nature. So as the word of life, he might live and die for us to bring us into fellowship with God. One divine person with two natures, divine and human, who functions as the source of our peace with God. Christ brings us into eternal fellowship that has existed in the Godhead from all time and all beginnings. And so to deny any aspect of that is to deny the truth of the gospel that saves and leaves us outside of a relationship with God. John is encouraging these believers to persist in this truth in spite of those who deny it and have left the faith. Be of good cheer. You are believing what the Bible says. And just persevere in it regardless of what culture or others say to you. You have known the truth, you experienced life, you have seen the light, and so believe and walk in the light. What these individuals who left the church are denying is not something uncommon. The same thing has happened hundreds of times in the life of local churches. And so historically, there have been uh, three cardinal questions or, or tests of faith. Uh, the first question is theological. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? God made flesh who lived and died, who was raised and ascended. Second John 7, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such that a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. If you think Jesus is just a man, just a moral example and teacher, and he is, a, he is those things, but he's not just a man. If you do not believe that he is God in flesh, then you are outside the faith. The second question is moral. Has the Spirit of God given birth to a new nature in you so that you are a new creation, so that you obey God, that you love God, and you love each other? Do you love the righteousness of God? 1 John 5, 1-3, all who believe that Jesus is the Christ ha have been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves those born of God. For by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments 
are not burdensome to us. I don't know, in the last five years, that verse has really struck me. We keep his commandments. Okay, I'm doing that, or at least I'm trying. And his commandments are not burdensome. Do we obey, but we find them burdensome? We think that God somehow is raining on our parade First question was, do we believe Jesus is the Christ? The second question is, do we love the righteousness of God? Demonstrate in, in loving his law, loving his commandments, loving one another. The third question is social. Do we love the saints? Do we love those for whom Christ died? Paul Tripp uh, tells uh, 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 of how from all eternity the Father and the Son had perfect communion, perfect unity. But on the cross, Jesus cries out what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by God. Why? So that we could be united to God and to each other. And then he comments, how dare we have division among us? The unity of the Godhead was disrupted so that we could have unity with God and each other. How dare we allow other things to get in the way of that? The point of these questions is not are we doing them perfectly, not do we love the law all the time, not are we uh, always loving each other perfectly, because this side of eternity, it's all a, a, a process, isn't it? But are we heading in the right direction? Are we growing in righteousness? Are we growing in our appreciation of God and his church? Think about, uh, and I thought this was an appropriate uh, way to phrase it. This is found in our statement of faith under the section of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It says this, the Spirit desires to fill God's people continually with the increased power for Christian life and witness. It goes on a little bit later. The filling of the Spirit brings to God's people a deeper knowledge of Christ, an increased desire for holiness, a stronger commitment to unity and love, a greater fruitfulness in ministry, a deeper gratitude for salvation? Do we see those things growing in our hearts? If we don't, then confess that to God. See, the wonderful thing is God has given us an answer. When, when we don't see what he's asking us to grow in, that means there's something wrong inside of us, that somehow sin has mucked things up. 
And you don't even have to necessarily know the specifics. Because sometimes we don't. We just, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I thought I should be further along. Or I thought I was further along until I lost my temper or whatever. You just confess, Lord, help me. Help me to love you more. Help me to love your word. Help me to hate sin. Help me to love righteousness. Help me to love the church and the people that you have placed in my life. Help me to serve them. Help me to love the lost. Father, give to me the heart that you want me to have. Repentance isn't pleading with God to forgive you. It's simply turning from sin and turning to Christ. There can be this transaction of, Lord, forgive me for my transgressions, but it's, it's, it's this act of turning because that's really the problem. We have to turn from whatever it is that the struggle is to Christ who is sufficient. And to use what he has given us. Do you ever feel frustrated with your own Christian growth? Do you, do you read the Bible and it's, I've read this a million times, just looks like words on the page to me today. And you pray and it's, you can't even get off the list of stuff you want. You know you should be praying about other things. Lord, give me, give me, give me. Have you, have you ever struggled with a sin? Repeatedly. And maybe that passage in John, you know, uh, the believer doesn't go, have the, we don't go on practicing sin. You're going, uh, I think I do sometimes. And, and in those moments, yeah, I, whether it's the flesh or Satan, what does he want us to do? To stay away from God. And there have, been, there have been numbers of times I go to the Word and I go, Lord, I don't know what else to do. But this is where you've promised to work. And it feels cold and dry this morning, but I am here. And I'm asking you to work through the means that you have given us and the ways that you have promised. You're not going to become more like Christ if you avoid church, prayer, Bible reading. It's... You're not going to improve on your own. It just doesn't happen. These are the means that God has given us, and so we need to avail ourselves, and if we don't, repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ and the means he has given us. Look at verse uh, 3 and 4. We're almost done. John goes on, he says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may com- be complete. Uh, as you look at that, there, there's, John is talking about we and you. Who is the we? Uh, that we are those that have seen, heard, and proclaimed. They are the apostolic witness. Those are the official eyewitnesses of the resurrection. The you is those who have come to faith. That he wants to see them mature in faith. 
the function, one of the functions of the office of apostle was to make known what they saw and what they experienced. It's interesting in Acts 1, uh, Judas has betrayed Christ and he's killed himself. And Peter says, we need to fill this office. The room is filled with eyewitness, but there needs to be someone to fill this position as an authoritative eyewitness. And it should be somebody who's been with us since Jesus began his ministry and one who saw the resurrected Christ. And so the, the apostles give their official eyewitness account. It has been recorded for us. And when you believe their witness, their witness account, then together we have fellowship with them and with the Father and the Son. And in that, in our fellowship, joy is made perfect. Our joy and God's joy. Because this is what he's intended for us. This is what he intended for us from the very beginning. God created us to live in a perfect world, in perfect communion with each other, with the creation, with him. And now through the gospel, he is bringing us back to the garden. To eat of the tree of life which is in the garden paradise of God. God's eternal purpose in Christ is brought to completion when we believe. Bringing the full or complete joy of God and his people. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 3, verses 9 to 11. Paul's ministry, his apostolic office, was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. His purposes have been the same, to have a people among whom he might dwell. Our faith, our belief in the apostolic witness is the completion of the earthly ministry of Jesus as the Spirit applies what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Uniting us to himself in perfect fellowship with him, with the Father, and with uh, the body of Christ, the church. And that brings joy that is complete.